freely come. Hooray, hooray, the time has really come. Cleveland got Larry Toby, Brooklyn's got Jackie Robinson. Brownie McGee, heard there on Vintage Vinyl. Hooray, hooray, the time has really come. It's the Robbie Doby Boogie, released in 1948, a blues singer's take on the historic season when Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby broke Major League Baseball's color barrier 75 years ago. Before Mr. Robinson and my father, a little boy of color couldn't say, I want to grow up and play in the big leagues because it hadn't happened before. When I think to myself that some little kid went to bed and dream like, I want to be like Larry Doby or I want to be like Jackie Robinson. I think that's a, a fantastic legacy, and that's probably, you know, what I'm most proud of him for. That's Larry Doby Jr. In the dramatic story of baseball's integration, Jackie Robinson stepped into the limelight first, but strong walls don't come down without repeated blows, and Larry Doby, the second black player in the major leagues, saw the work before both him and Jackie Robinson, not just as a matter of exceptional skill and athleticism. No, they felt like they were carrying the future of the sport on their shoulders. That is, the future of who got to play. Both Mr. Robinson and my dad knew that if they didn't succeed, it was going to be a very long time before others were given the same opportunities. You know, it was called the big experiment. You know, can a white athlete play with a black athlete or vice versa? which is crazy if you think about it today, but back then, that's the way they felt about it. Social and cultural norms can set up like cement. If they were to change anything at all, these two players needed allies. For Larry Doby Sr., the person who championed his prospects of playing in the MLB was the owner of the Cleveland Indians, Bill Veck Jr., Vec was a very progressive individual who believed in equality and things like this. He grew up around the Negro Leagues in Chicago, and he knew that black players were every bit as good as white players. And so he had integration on his mind from a very early age. And I would say that if Branch Rickey hadn't integrated the Dodgers, Bill Vec was going to plow through and integrate the Indians regardless. That's Luke Eplin, author of Our Team the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Now, Bill Veck wasn't on a single-minded quest for social equity. His civil rights agenda, revolutionary as that may have been, was part of an even broader package. And that included a reinvention of baseball as experienced from the stands. For one thing, getting people to attend who weren't even yet fans of the sport. Going to the baseball game should be almost a theatrical experience. It should have room for competitive play on the field, but also sort of entertaining sideshows between innings, before games, after games. These two things were not in tension with each other. They could complement each other. And so he starts doing things when he buys a minor league team called the Milwaukee Brewers when he's only 27 years old. He starts doing things like shooting off fireworks, giving away wild uh prizes at, at the door, like livestock or big blocks of ice or things like this, doing quiz shows, doing contests, um, whatever he could think of. It, it was just kind of a, almost like a vaudevillian performance. And fans who didn't even care about baseball would start showing up for the game knowing that they might see something there that they would never see before. And Beck's theory was that even if these fans didn't like baseball, they would have to sit through a game regardless. And they might be entertained by the fireworks and the giveaways and all that. But then they could also become baseball fans through the process of sitting through the game. I'm Marcus Smith. This hour on Constant Wonder, we bring you a tale of two revolutions, but just one city. The place and time, Cleveland, 1948, the first year any MLB team ever won the World Series with an integrated team. And the two revolutions? A radical overhaul of what baseball crowds would get for their money, and of greater consequence by far, who would be allowed to play? We'll be hearing about the public triumph and private sorrows of the first two black players to play for the Cleveland Indians, Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. Also about the freewheeling, risk-taking owner of the team, Bill Veck, and of course, the town they all won over. 
The first thing we usually think of in a story like this are the grand moments of triumph, the public accolades, celebrations of everything positive accomplished for society. But Jackie Robinson never forgot his heartache at the backlash that came for what he did. Bench jockeys spouting endless verbal taunts. Go back to the cotton fields. Go back to the jungle. The threats that came in the mail, including threats against his family. And then there were the segregationist players of the opposing teams who raised the specter of walkouts. You know, if you really want to understand the situation of these first black players in the MLB, it really helps to remember that integration of professional baseball was something that followed close on the heels of World War II. Official segregation of black soldiers in the U.S. military, well, that was a very fresh story, which in America's black community had spurred what was called the Double V Campaign. The Double V Campaign was launched by black newspapers at the start of World War II to signify victory on two fronts. It was going to be victory against fascism abroad, namely the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, but also victory on the home front. And that consisted of ending Jim Crow laws, ending segregation, and giving black citizens full participation in democracy. So they were looking both externally and internally in terms of the battles they were fighting in World War II. Just like it did all Americans, the Second World War shaped all the characters in this story, but in different ways. To understand the effect it had on Larry Doby, we've got to go back to his childhood far from Cleveland. Larry Doby, he's from South Carolina, and he moved to the North when he was a teenager to go to an integrated high school in Patterson, New Jersey. He was an extraordinarily gifted athlete and became the captain of several teams there at that integrated high school, which in some ways sort of insulated him from some of the segregation practices that were in play in the North. He always felt accepted on those teams because his ability allowed him to, to transcend some of those sorts of things. He became friends with many white teammates and many white coaches. And so whenever he gets drafted into the Navy, he takes a train from his home in New Jersey all the way over to Chicago, the Great Lakes training station. He sees on the train people that he knew in high school, white teammates, black teammates. They're all together on the same train going to the same place. And so he figures that it's like a sports team traveling communally, and they're all going to be there at the training station to prepare for the same objective. But once he gets to the Great Lakes training station, the white troops are immediately separated from the black troops. And Doby said that that was the first time that segregation really just hit him hard, that sort of punched him in the face almost. And he saw that the, the country that he was about to defend was treating him as a second-class citizen. And it was sort of a blow that he never really recovered from. And he had kind of an M.O. for dealing with the emotions of this, all of this. Mm-hmm. He'd go silent. It's an interesting contrast between Larry Doby and Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was somebody who burned hot. His natural instinct was to lash out. He was a bit more of an extrovert than Doby. Doby, on the other hand, was a very introverted man. He was shy, he kept to himself, and whenever he would suffer these slights, whether it is getting separated from his white troops or whether it was just hearing sort of racial abuse or verbal taunts that all of the pioneering black athletes had to deal with during that time, Doby would sort of turn inward, go into a shell, not talk. He was somebody who held these slights inside of him and they festered within himself. Tell us a little bit now about his earliest days of life, his childhood, his uh, learning to play ball. He is from Camden, South Carolina. His father was a horse groomer at many of these uh, large hotels that sprouted up in that region to take care of wintering northerners. His father was a prominent baseball player on many semi-pro black baseball teams in the South Carolina region, and that's clearly where Doby inherited a lot of his talent. But his father would follow the families of the horses that he was looking after to the north during the summer seasons. And so Doby didn't grow up or seeing much of his father. Nevertheless, the coach that used to coach the teams on which his father played saw something in Larry Doby from the time he was a very early age. By the time he was 10 or 12 or something like that. He was competing against grown men on semi-professional black teams that would travel around the state of South Carolina to play other teams. Um, His mother 
because the father wasn't around, had to go to Patterson, New Jersey, to try to find her way, where she lived as a live-in domestic uh, worker, cleaning houses and preparing food and things like that for rich families in Patterson, New Jersey. And Dobie followed her up there in high school, where he uh, himself had to live with various families while his mother was away. It was a very um, unstable childhood. And he really found stability in sports, whether it was basketball, football, or baseball. In fact, he was so good at all of these sports that I talked to one of his high school teammates, and he said that basketball was Larry Doby's best sport. He was making moves on the court that people at a time whenever they were shooting set shots and sort of having a more stagnant game had never seen before. This is not just like the local star athlete. It said that he was known from the, what, from Cape May, that's south of New Jersey, all the way up to Hoboken. Statewide, mm-hmm. people knew his name. Yeah, if you go through the archives of newspapers in New Jersey at that time, you would have seen many uh, mentions of Larry Doby throughout the sports page. He was somebody who was so popular in high school that Patterson, New Jersey, did something they'd never done for another athlete. In his senior year, they did a testimonial dinner for him. Poems were read about his greatness. Songs were composed, and he was given a watch by the school. This was a very special individual on the courts and on the fields. He led his high school football team to the state championship. Years later, when he was telling his kids about the glory days, it was Patterson, New Jersey, and football that Larry Doby wanted to talk about, not his professional baseball career. That's how life-changing and defining this period of his life was. His son, Larry Doby Jr. When I was a little kid, I was like probably any other son or daughter who wanted to know what, you know, their daddy did for a living. And I would always ask him, you know, tell me about, you know, this baseball stuff, this, that, and the other thing. And he wouldn't talk about it. You know, his, his thing was that he would always talk about high school football, for Patterson Eastside High School playing on Thanksgiving Day against Patterson Central in Hinchcliffe Stadium and how the whole town stopped and came to watch those games and how that to him was his, you know, the peak of his athletic, uh, you know, performance. Like that, that was everything to him. He talked about that all the time. I would only hear him talk about baseball stuff when he'd be on the phone with a reporter or when he would be talking to Don Newcomb, who was one of his closest friends. So, you know, then I would sort of like, you know, sit down and hide myself and listen to hear the stories. You know, as he got older, his lips got a little bit looser, but he really didn't talk about that. And, you know, to this day, I don't know why. I don't know if it was too painful. I don't know, you know, if he just didn't want to live in the past. I, I, I really don't know. Aside from winning that state championship in football, a transcendent moment for Larry Doby, also from his high school days, was something that happened afterward. More accurately, was something that was supposed to happen afterward, but never did. He was All-State in three sports, and football, he always said, was his best sport. And his senior year, they won a state championship at Eastside, and they were invited to go play uh, a football game in Florida against a team down there. And everything was, you know, being arranged, uh, travel and, you know, the game arrangements and so forth and so on. And they let it be known that, that Patterson Eastside was welcome, but they weren't welcome with their African-American player, which was my dad. And those boys made a decision at a very young age, which I don't know if I could have made, because when you're 15, 16, 17 years old and somebody says, hey, you know, you get to get on a train and go play against another team, it's pretty exciting. But they decided not to go and not to accept the invitation. And that always, you know, stuck with them. And those were lifelong friends and, you know, some great memories for him. The people all around Patterson, New Jersey, knew that he could make it to the top of most any sport. So when it came time for college, what was it to be for Larry Doby? Football? Baseball? Basketball? He could have had his, his, his selection of any sport he wanted to. And after high school, he decides to go on an athletic scholarship to Long Island University for basketball. But he still loved baseball. And so he got recruited onto a local Negro League team called the Newark Eagles, where he played under an alias so that he wouldn't have to jeopardize his amateur status. And so before World War II, he was uh, already well on the track to becoming a professional in either of those sports. And now that you've mentioned Negro Leagues, would you give us some kind of a sense for how baseball was configured in our country during that time period? 
this would be the late 30s to the early 40s before the war. Major League Baseball was segregated. It was an all-white endeavor. And so uh, there were a number of black leagues that that sprouted up, namely um, what we call the Negro Leagues, which would have consisted of the Negro National League and the Negro American League. They were not quite as professionalized as Major League Baseball. They would often play what were known as league games, where two sort of major teams, whether it was the Kansas City Monarchs or the Pittsburgh Crawfords, played against each other. And then to make ends meet, these teams would have to sort of travel around and play roving exhibition games against semi-professional clubs, local clubs, factory clubs, things like that. And so the Negro League schedule was very exhausting, difficult, and sort of uncertain at times. And I should also mention that even though Negro League teams never played Major League teams, white and black players did play against each other during this time. This was known as barnstorming. It usually happened after the World Series in October, where white players would, in order to make a little bit of money before the coming winter offseason, sort of band together and go around the country to the areas that did not have Major League teams and play these exhibition games in which the style of baseball was a little looser, and they could do things there that uh, that you couldn't do in the majors. Uh, most notably, they would play against squads of all black players. And so this was one of the few instances where a player like Satchel Paige would get to face a great white superstar like either Dizzy Dean or Bob Feller. I can't even imagine what the overtones of that experience would be like, though, in terms of racial tension. A lot of these black teams would often beat squads of all major league clubs. And so the commissioner of baseball at that time, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, in order not to be embarrassed by this, set off a lot of uh, rules for uh, white teams. They, you couldn't have too many players on the same major league team team up together, so then it wouldn't look like, say, the Yankees were playing a Negro League team. All the games had to be classified as exhibitions to make clear that these are just kind of performative showcases and not actual competitive games. And a lot of white players looked at it that way. That this was more performance than competition. For black players, it was it was much different sort of thing. They were trying to prove that they were every bit as good as the, the white players in the major league and the league that really segregated them. This was a way to showcase their talent and to get themselves noticed and just to really stick it to the major league. You see someone like Satchel Paige really bring his A game anytime he's facing a squad of major league players. So if we're talking about players like Larry Doby or Satchel Paige or Jackie Robinson, uh, we're talking about players who made their name to begin with as phenomenal players in the Negro Leagues? That is correct. That was their only point of entree into the sport. That and barnstorming, uh, certainly, that would have done it. And I should mention that these were players that also had to sort of travel throughout the season. There wasn't a lot of off-season for Negro League players because the money wasn't as good in the Negro Leagues. And so players like Satchel Paige and Larry Doby would often go play in Puerto Rico, Mexico, Venezuela, places like this during the off-season to make money. Um, But, yeah, the Negro Leagues were were really where they made their name. They were uh, folk heroes for a lot of black Americans. They were written up across the the African-American press in the United States. And some players like Satchel Paige became so notorious and so sort of mythologized for the feats that they did on the field and the persona that they adopted that they crossed over into the white mainstream. Satchel Paige was one of the few players who uh, not only every black fan around the country knew, but pretty soon every white fan started to know as well. And white fans would show up whenever Satchel Paige would come to town to pitch because they had heard of him. He was a kind of a, a roving legend. And so there were players like that that became so sort of notorious that white fans and white players would really know them and, and seek them out. We've introduced you to Larry Doby, and now we have a sense of his life leading up to Cleveland, from his glory days in high school to the Negro Leagues, to experiencing segregation in the military. Time now to get to know a couple of other key figures with individual stories that all come together eventually in that historic 1948 World Series, in that season when desegregation was just getting underway in the MLB including the story of a player whose real-life upbringing on a Midwest farm seems like it was shot for a Kevin Costner fantasy sports movie. You probably know which one I mean. 
And we'll pick up the Bill Veck thread, too, because it wasn't just players on the field in this story who radically changed the game of baseball. Luke Eplin is author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. One of those four was Bob Feller. In his day, Bob Feller seemed to be the poster boy for clean-cut American goodness. And here we're really talking about everything the mainstream, predominantly white culture deemed to be wholesome. Feller consciously cultivated that public image of wholesomeness. Luke Eplin now circles back in time to bring Bob Feller into this story. Bob Feller, I think, has the most incredible athlete origin story of anyone in the United States. I don't think it's been surpassed. He grows up on a farm in central Iowa. His dad notices a a tremendous ability in Feller's pitching from a very early age. Feller was one of the fastest throwers that have ever picked up a baseball. So his dad to nurture that ability, clears off a part of their pasture and builds him his own ball field right there on their farm. It's essentially the original field of dreams. And so Feller comes of age um, competing on that diamond against men many years his elder. A scout from the Cleveland Indians uh, hears word of him, comes to see him play, and signs him to the team. And Feller, through happenstance, joins the Indians roster when he's only 17. He's a high school junior. And his very first start ever in the major leagues, he ties the American League record for strikeouts. Four starts after that, he ties the major league record for strikeouts. He becomes so popular across the country that by the time he's 18, he's on the cover of Time magazine, and his high school graduation is being broadcast live by NBC Radio from coast to coast. He is a phenom. And he lives up to the hype. His, his fastball is extremely swift. But what really sets him apart is that this is during the Great Depression. We're talking about the mid-30s, a time whenever people are really questioning whether the American dream is still alive. And here you had this sort of homegrown farm boy who builds himself up through hard work and durable family bonds and all of these things that are sort of part and parcel of what we like to think of as the American dream, making it into the majors at a very young age and just setting down batters like no one else. So he becomes an avatar of hope in the Great Depression. And Feller is a very savvy individual and definitely performs that role quite well. And so it, it, it really builds him up into an icon of that time. So he's kind of like in, in baseball, he's kind of like a Jimmy Stewart in film. Absolutely. And he plays the guileless farm boy to a T, even as he knows that that's his way of making money. Feller is a very entrepreneurial sort of person. His father is a very good business savvy person. So they take that role and use it to their advantage to get him opportunities on the barnstorming trail, opportunities in commercials and sort of advertising and all these sorts of things. And so he becomes this, this sort of almost like throwback kid of innocence. And at the same time, this extremely wealthy, very savvy and, and smart businessman. Now, in your subtitle, you say that you're going to tell us the story of four men who, uh, mm-hmm. who, who changed baseball. And we've gotten some pretty good detail about uh, Larry Doby and Bob Feller. I want to go to the third player in this story, Satchel Page. You've mentioned him a number of times already. Satchel is practically a, a generation ahead of these two. He's older by years. Yeah, Satchel Page was, was born in 1906. And so by the time... Bob Feller, for example, breaks into the major league. Satchel Page is already in his 30s. He comes from the deep south of Mobile, Alabama, during a time of extreme segregation and Jim Crow laws. Um, and he, like Feller, is extremely business savvy and sort of can knows how to use a persona to his advantage. He also threw extremely hard. He had incredible control. He could place the ball wherever he wanted to. Yet he also had that sort of it factor. He would walk to the mound extremely slowly. He had this sort of blank, expressionless face. He would windmill his arms while he pitched. He had a variety of pitches that he could throw from every angle and things like that. He just knew how to entertain a crowd and keep 
keep the eyes of the crowd glued on him at all times. And so he builds himself up during a time when the Negro Leagues are in utter collapse during the Great Depression into a one-man franchise who could take a piece of the gate wherever he pitched. And pretty soon his legend and his celebrity become so great that white fans start to, to come to see him. Players on the barnstorming trail like Bob Feller and Dizzy Dean seek him out because they know that he is somebody who could really bring the, the, the black fans to come see them, which will in turn make them all the more richer uh, during these barnstorming games. And so he's a, he's a phenom. There's just sort of no way about it. Given that Satchel Page was a living legend, even if you're the preternatural Larry Doby, you probably felt like kid stuff next to Satchel Page. And then there's Page's business acumen. That, too, had really made an impression on Doby when he was back in the Negro Leagues. Here's Doby's son again, Larry Jr. <laughs> well, my dad had a very tremendous amount of respect for Satchel Page. The businessman that Satchel Page was, I think my father had never seen anything like that. This was a, a gentleman who owned a plane and flew his team around back in the 40s and was such a gate attraction that he would play three different games in three different cities, like maybe New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, you know, in a morning, an afternoon, and a night game. People paid money to see him pitch and to see him perform. Satchel Page won Doby's admiration for his pitching and for his larger-than-life persona, but not to forget this. Page was nearly twice as old as Doby, too. The younger athlete, he was clearly of a mind to be properly deferential towards his elders, even if it happened to be a sports legend soon to be past his prime for baseball. By the time integration actually happens and Jackie Robinson is signed, Page is coming into his 40s. And so there's this recognition across Major League Baseball that while Satchel Page may have been the greatest pitcher of his time, white or black, it's probably too late for him now to actually cross over into the majors. We've now met three players on the roster of this historic Cleveland Indians team, two black, one white. But we shouldn't forget about owner Bill Veck. We introduced you to him at the outset. He had some rather unorthodox ideas about what watching a baseball game should be like. Here he is talking to legendary broadcaster Edward R. Murrow on the show Person to Person. What's behind your theory of showmanship in baseball? Well, I happen to have a very ridiculous theory, according to many many uh, ball club operators, that it should be fun. You know, I don't think that baseball is such a grim, serious thing. Sure, I don't want to interfere with the game, but I do want everyone who comes out the ballpark to have fun and look. Let's face it, often the ballgame is not the most exciting thing that ever has happened. And what might add more excitement, according to Bill Veck? Door prizes, for one thing, blocks of ice on hot days, maybe something even bigger, a cow for some lucky ticket holder who might have no idea what to do with it. If you've ever been to a ball game just to enjoy the sheer spectacle surrounding it all, then you've got a sense of what Veck brought to the game. Parades, pageantry, musical celebrities, clowns. He's the guy who designed an exploding scoreboard that shoots fireworks with every home run. Later in Chicago, he would install a shower in Comiskey Park to cool off fans in the bleachers. Whatever his scheme, Bill Veck always went big. His aspiration to integrate his team, to break the color barrier, was no exception. But was this move, controversial as it was in his day, fueled more by progressive politics in the service of civil rights than, say, inherent business interests? I think it was both. When he buys the Indians in 1946, the Indians are a sixth-place team in the American League. They are nowhere near the pennant, nowhere near competing with clubs like the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. Beck is an impatient man, and he wants to turn around the team as soon as possible. There's only so much you can do in an era before free agency. You could, you could make trades or you could sign young people, but that takes time and skill. He recognized, Beck did, that there was this tremendous untapped resource that was the Negro Leagues, and he knew how good the players were there. And so he looks to the Negro Leagues to fill in the weak spots of the Indians' roster, and he has his choice uh, outside of perhaps the Brooklyn Dodgers, of the best 
players from that league. And so he's integrating, I think, for reasons of practical business sense to bring the Indians to a championship caliber. And I think the secondary concern is that he does believe that this is also the right thing to to do. Now, the World War II imposition on the sport is something we got to grapple with because, you know, here you've got this national sport, thoroughly American. It's symbolically a huge rallying point for black Americans, for white Americans. There's an even playing field in terms of people's enthusiasm for it, at the very least. There's obviously something about World War II that when everybody comes home and victory is had, you just can't go back to where you were. The the innocence is gone. And these four players, along with everybody else, got to live with that. Yeah, they all have experiences that really shape who they they are. Um, Bob Feller, true to his his character of being somebody who conforms to the times and, and can sort of change as things change, becomes the first baseball player to sign up for World War II after Pearl Harbor. He doesn't have to, but he feels a sort of duty to do so. And he becomes kind of a war hero uh, to the nation. He goes around and sells bonds and things like this um, and becomes the face of an athlete during the war. But he really wants to fight. He's in there for sort of uh, pure reasons as well. So he goes onto a battleship and sees some of the toughest uh, battles in the South Pacific that you can imagine, and it really hardens him, and he comes back from the World War II with uh, an attitude that is a lot more business-minded and, and not as wide-eyed and, and innocent. Bill Zeck also doesn't have to go to World War II if he doesn't want to, but he feels a calling to do so, and he gets sent out to the South Pacific, and within months, he is injured pretty severely. A gun backfires onto his foot and basically just smashes it, and he gets sent off to amputation wards and and will eventually have to lose his leg, which, you know, really puts a new perspective on his life. Larry Doby, I think, is the most changed by this, uh, going into the military, seeing how, how segregation works, seeing that he cannot play on the same military teams as white players, even though he is probably better than all of them, and he had grown up on integrated teams in high school, really uh, opens his eyes to the segregation that this country um, practices. And so he, too, comes back with uh, with a little bit more of cynicism to him. But I'll also say about World War II in baseball is that baseball is the thing that people like Feller, Dobie, Vec want to come back to whenever all these men after the war come back to the U.S. They look to baseball to establish normalcy in their lives. And so attendance records get shattered, not only in the major leagues, but in the Negro leagues as well. People being flocking back to baseball, they look at it as something as a constant in American life, as a way to sort of integrate themselves back into civilian life from the military. So during this time, 46, 47, 48, baseball is cresting as as the sort of popular uh, sport in the United States. As the country was putting the war behind it, Bill Veck returned to something he claimed he'd wanted to do back in 1942, sign players from the Negro Leagues into the MLB. Nothing in the law prohibited integration. There was, however, an unwritten mutual understanding, call it a gentleman's agreement, among owners and the league. This was to keep the team segregated. For one thing, the owners of the stadiums rented out their venues to the Negro League, and integration for them could mean lost revenue, or so they claimed. But on April 15, 1947, the Brooklyn Dodgers welcomed Jackie Robinson onto the field, and on the heels of that historic moment, Vec made his move, bringing Larry Doby to Cleveland, the very day after Doby played his final game in the Negro Leagues. Larry Doby played one final game for the Newark Eagles on July 4th, 1947, boarded an overnight train to Chicago where the Indians were going to play the White Sox. The very next day, he was on the Indians roster. He traveled literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues, first player ever to do so. He really struggles in 1947. He is in shock. He said that he couldn't stop his teeth from chattering, and he's dealing with tremendous isolation and alienation separate hotels, not being able to go to restaurants with his teammates, and just the burdens of being the only black player on the Indians roster. So what does Bill Veck do about the fact that integration on the field does not equate to 
integration off the field with the teammates. I mean, if, if they're having separate hotels and separate transportation mm-hmm. and can't be uh, dining in the same space as all of this, does he intervene? He doesn't really. He He's somebody who keeps a very watchful eye over Larry Doby. Larry Doby is much younger than Jackie Robinson. He was 23 whenever he integrated. And as we talked about earlier, he is a withdrawing, introverted character who tended to get down on himself. If Beck sensed that Doby was going through a particularly rough period, he would swoop in, take him out to dinner, they would go to a jazz club, they would listen to music, sort of build Doby's spirit back up. But Beck himself would say that he didn't intervene in terms of the hotels and the restaurants and things like that because he didn't want to create too much of a stir um, whenever this happened. And this this was a constant across Major League Baseball. I talked to a couple players who were still alive on integrated teams, and they said that they thought that the fact that they were playing with and accepting a teammate like Jackie Robinson or Larry Doby represented such a big step for them and that that already was something major that was happening. They didn't feel like it was their place then to sort of step in and say, well, why doesn't this hotel accept black uh, uh, customers? And so, unfortunately, at that time, um, those sorts of issues weren't necessarily raised. So Larry Doby would show up at a place, get shoveled off to to another hotel from his teammates, have to kind of be there in solitude. And I think that was a really tough thing on him. After he'd have a bad day in the field or strike out a bunch of times, he couldn't just go out with his teammates and sort of have a beer and forget about it. He had to sit there in his hotel room and stew over it himself. And he talked about how a lot of his best baseball was left in that hotel room because he would just be sleepless. As Larry Doby Jr. already told us, his dad didn't talk much about his days in professional baseball. And all that not talking about it seems to rest on two main reasons. For one thing, his youthful days in Patterson, his glory days, were unforgettable, joyful memories, easy to talk about. The we-don't-talk-about-Bruno side of Doby, staying almost totally silent about the pro-ball years, that likely had to do with the emotional pain of ongoing social marginalization— Larry Doby Jr. gives a lot of credit to Bill Veck for helping his dad get through the hurt and isolation of being on the team but not on the team. One of the things he told my dad early on was, we're in this together. If you fail, I fail. So my father never felt alone. The fact that my father felt like there was somebody in his corner gave him the confidence to succeed. And he's often said that, you know, he doesn't, know exactly how he endured some of the things that he had to endure. He said that God had to be on his side and that my mother and Mr. Veck, you know, were his uh, shining stars and the people that really helped him succeed under circumstances that probably most people wouldn't have. So you just feel quite surely that Bill Veck Jr. was the real deal when it came to the civil rights uh, concerns? Yeah, without a doubt. My father's... Not, Not colored by business concerns. I'm sure that had something to do with it. I mean, he's not, you know, he he wasn't oblivious to making a buck, but he also knew that that talent deserved an opportunity and he was going to do it. So, you know, I feel like, yes, he was genuine. My father lost his dad when he was about eight years old. And he always said that if his father would have lived, he hoped he would have grown up to been the kind of man that Mr. Vec was. So that was good enough for me. That first season was rocky for all the reasons we've just heard. But his second season, a different story altogether. It's in a tremendous turnaround then to 1948. He comes into spring training with a different attitude. He immediately starts showing the promise he did in the Negro Leagues. He thrives. And, but the Indians are still struggling that season. It's, uh, they're, they're trying to get past the Yankees and Red Sox. Bill Veck, midway through the season, realizes he needs more pitching if he's going to stave off those really good clubs. So he does something that basically an owner should have done 20 years earlier. He signs 42-year-old Satchel Page, and that creates a commotion across Major League Baseball. It'll be an even greater commotion on the order of World Series commotion when Larry Doby and Satchel Page and all the rest of the Indians hit their stride. And what about that wholesome kid, now war veteran, Bob Feller, the pitching phenom? 
How's this brave new world going to play out for him, where so many old assumptions seem to be dissolving? So at this point, Bill Veck has a historically unprecedented roster on his hands in terms of race, showcasing three undeniably brilliant players, Bob Feller, Satchel Paige, Larry Doby. Those last two, having been superstars while playing for the Negro Leagues, are already infusing Major League Baseball with new excitement, bolstering the reputation of the Cleveland Indians. And with the team having made it to the World Series, Bill Veck is hoping... His politically provocative chess moves will redraw the board in their favor. Here's Luke Eplin again. The Indians have this incredible run through 1948 um, where they are sort of neck and neck with the Red Sox and the Yankees the whole way. Signing Satchel Paige was such a huge part of, of making sure that they made it into the World Series. He gives them six crucial wins. And the fans are so excited to see Satchel Paige pitch that they... At one point, they literally tear out the turnstiles of the stadium to get in to see him pitch. He is, just creates a commotion wherever he goes. And it's really through the signing of Doby and Page that the Indians get past the Red Sox and the Yankees. No other team in the American League has integrated their rosters. And Page and Doby have these amazing 1948 seasons. And it was through their talent that the Indians are able to get over that hump and into the World Series. It's, it's a real sort of lesson for a lot of the other teams that if you want to uh, get to the next level, the surefire way to do so is through integration. And does Bob Feller have to move aside to allow this to happen? In 1948, he has quite uh, a poor season throughout most of the year. And it's really because of his poor season that Vex feels the need to sign Satchel Page. And so Page becomes kind of the, the face of the Indians pitching staff there, taking it over from Feller for the first time uh, since Feller joined the roster. So, yes, Feller does kind of, his star begins to dim the moment that integration happens. So how does this all go down? There's no need to worry about spoilers here. <laughs> this is, this mm. is, this is a, a grand, historic World Series, and not just for the Cleveland Indians, but for the entire country and our history. Yeah, Bob Feller starts game one, and he is just the Bob Feller of old. He's throwing the ball past everybody, uh, everybody with ease. His, his speed is there. And he gets beat on a heartbreaking play and loses one to nothing, even though he only allows two hits in that game. So the Indians immediately go down. They, start, they win the next two games. And in game four, the, the Boston Braves, who the Indians are facing in the World Series, they would, of course, later become the Atlanta Braves, um, put their ace on the mound, Johnny Sane. And the Indians are just having such a hard time getting anything off of Johnny Sane. That was the seventh strikeout of the series for Johnny Sane. Struck out six opening day. Here's your pitch, swung on and missed by Mitchell for a strike. He sort of held up a little bit, trying to time that curve. Then swung viciously, but missed it. He tried to pull it, too. Larry Doby, on the other hand, comes up in the fourth inning, hits a monster home run that puts the Indians ahead. And it's really the run that saved the game. The stern-looking Johnny Sane ready. It's into the windup. Round comes the right arm, the pitch, an overhand fastball swung on. Hit high and deep in the right center field. The ball is going, going. It is gone. The first home run. Larry Doby just teed off for the first home run of the 1948 World Series. A long, high drive in the right center that cleared the 380-foot side. And the Indians lead 2 to nothing. For his teammates, Doby's home run was the inspiration they needed, the wind in their sails to bring home the win. The Indians pitched a guy named Steve Gromek, who was kind of a middling, let's say, you know, average pitcher at that time. And he pitches his heart out and wins because Larry Doby hits that home run. In the clubhouse afterward, Gromek finds Doby, just wraps his arms around him, and in this spontaneous display of emotion, hugs him and holds him close. And it's just these two men celebrating this amazing win together. And newspapers snapped a picture of them celebrating, and it went across the front pages 
of newspapers across the country. It's really the first image that you see of this kind, a white teammate and a black teammate in this spontaneous display of emotion celebrating. And it becomes a tremendous symbol, not only for the country, but for Larry Doby himself, who has gone through all of this struggle and strife to get to this moment. And then he finds himself kind of being a hero of that game and getting this recognition and this sort of uh, thanks from a white teammate that he feels like he's been missing. So it's, it's a really wonderful image. Feller then goes to lose the next game, and the Indians close out the series in six. And so even though Feller loses the two games, Larry Doby emerges as the hero of that World Series. And so it, it's a really important landmark for this country. In an era when baseball, according to Eplin, surpassed all other sports in popularity and profitability. This is before the establishment of the National Basketball Association. Football is sort of in its infancy as a, a, as a professional sport. And so baseball becomes the sort of, if, if you were an athlete at that time that wanted to make any sort of money and that wanted to have a large platform, baseball was where you would sort of gravitate toward. And so the spotlight was very heavily upon it. You know, I mean, there were two separate leagues that, that were competitively very, um, I wouldn't say on equal ground because Major League Baseball had so much more money that they could they could put into it. But they were such dominant black players at that time that were just very clear-cut Major League caliber. And so was the right sort of venue and the right avenue for an integration process to really play out. Although I should mention that at the same time that the Indians are integrating the sport in Cleveland, there's another team, the Cleveland Browns, their great football team that is still with us, that was also integrating its roster. So Cleveland at the time was really at the forefront of integration in athletics. You had the Browns and the Indians integrating uh, in the same years. So maybe uh, as far as America is concerned, maybe Cleveland was more like Peoria than Peoria. It, it was it was like the, the the heart and soul of what would happen to America. It's a really interesting town at this this era. Um, it has a, about a million people in it. It's factories and, and industrial sector, which has always been important to the city, got revived during the uh, World War II times to make sort of wartime things. And then it, it continued into the post-war era. Cleveland is riding the high at this time. And a lot of black workers that were being shut out of unions and not given sort of factory jobs are lobbying the city of Cleveland to um, give them better working conditions. And so the, the city passes many progressive ordinances that allows them to, to register workplace complaints whenever they're being shut out of processes. They're running for office and things like this. So much so that by 1950, Ebony Magazine declares Cleveland to be the most democratic city in the United States in terms of race relations. And so Cleveland is at the forefront of, of these movements. And unfortunately, I think that that's been a little lost. We, we, we as a nation perhaps don't remember this. Imagine yourself living in 1948, a Clevelander and a baseball fan. Even if your town is more democratically progressive than most, still, segregation has been the norm. Until just the previous year, blacks had been shut out of Major League Baseball. So when it comes to this national pastime, because of the racial divide, how could you ever say that your experience as a fan has been typical? I mean, typical of what? Of whom? Now the times they are a-changin', so what will your next ticket to watch the Cleveland Indians or the Browns or any other team mean for you? In your own role as a fan, how do you figure into this rapidly developing story? Cleveland had a Negro League team at this time called the Buckeyes. They were extremely good. They won the 1945 Negro League World Series championship. They had amazing players like Sam Jethro and Quincy Troop. But as soon as the Indians become integrated... Black fans really start to sort of turn their attention toward the Indians. If you read the, the black press in Cleveland at the time, there's less and less coverage of the Buckeyes and more and more coverage of the Indians. And so black fans themselves start showing up at uh, the Indians game to great effect. The Indians in 1948 set the major league attendance record for this 
for a season in Major League Baseball with 2.6 million fans. And a tremendous percentage of those are black fans that are scattered throughout the seats. Um, it is an integrated experience there. And whenever the Indians win the World Series, the Colin Post, which is the premier black newspaper in Cleveland at that time, says that because of this integration, because of Bill Veck, because of Larry Doby, because of Satchel Page, the Indians are now our team. And they put our team in all cap capital letters. In other words, that this is now the team for Cleveland. So you, you really see black fans kind of turn away from their traditional uh, their traditional rooting interests in the Negro Leagues and really embrace Major League Baseball as integration is happening. Luke Eplin, author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. And we're happy to give the city of Cleveland its due here on Constant Wonder. I think Larry Doby Jr. was really onto something when he talked about how a city could change the life of a family, his family. Even with a self-effacing dad who never dwelt much on his professional triumphs. You know, like I said, he, he didn't talk a lot about it, you know, hardly ever. And then I remember one day we were watching a game on TV and he made that statement. He said, I never got booed in Cleveland. And I remember looking at him like he was crazy because, you know, growing up here, they booed Mickey Mantle near the end of his career. And he's one of the greatest players ever, one of the most beloved players. And I thought, what are you talking about? Dad? He goes, no, I, I never, they never booed me in Cleveland. You know, he said it with a straight face, stone cold sober. So to me, that meant that Cleveland had his back, that he was their guy, and that whether he struck out or hit a home run, they were still going to root for him. And that resonated with me, you know, still does to this day. And it was a, a really fitting comment for a small little Midwestern town, you know, that really was not in the limelight of the national media. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor, Daniel McDonald, and Siana Alano, with support for sound design from Trent Reimschussel and Parker Schmidt and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.